Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we are here today to talk about part five of the darkness that comes before. We've been talking each part every week, almost. So we have come to the end, part five, the final part. So I'm here today with Katerina and Daniel. So Katerina, you introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Katerina, and uh, I've been rereading the darkness that comes before with these two guys. And I'm super excited that we're finally at the end and, and we can talk some spoilers. And I am also rereading the darkness that comes before for maybe the third time now. And it's been fun to have some people to talk about it with. Yeah, I'm, you know, coming every week to, to talk about the, about the book has definitely helped me a lot. It's changed my, my reading habits a lot um, doing this. So it's been a lot of fun. So thanks to both of you for, for doing this. Hopefully we can continue the rest of the series <laughs> so uh mm. part five the holy war yeah i mean uh i've also uh, it's been a little greater great experience for me as well because uh like having the time to like to have being able to take the time to go slowly through each of these parts mm. and to really like dissect the the plot and then the, the character dynamics and the psychology like it, it's definitely improved my experience even reading this book. Like even the parts that I didn't remember enjoying as much in my last read, I thought were just top of the game. So um, I, I, lo I love reading this book, reading through this book again. It's, it's been it's been great. And that's true. I think maybe I'll give an example of something that you can catch through the book, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you might not catch. So Steve might not know. Katarina knows. She alluded to it a couple parts ago. Hmm. Maybe I know what you're talking about. There's been a couple of times when uh, both of you have kind of looked at each other and smiled and stopped yourselves, and I thought, okay, this is going to happen. You know, just gonna <laughs> be reminded of this part later, so. Yeah, he goes. You've done a really good job not spoiling anything. So, kudos for that. Because it must be hard to remember once you get past you know so many books. It's hard to remember what happened in which book. So, yeah, I think doing Katarina this primary part. Yeah, go ahead. Katarina mentions Skios differently, for sure. When she talked about him, and now we know why she mentioned Skios's name strangely. Did I? Oh man! <laughs> I was trying to be very. Uh... Yeah, I know you were. You did. You did well. I don't think Steve noticed anything. I didn't notice. I, I didn't bring up the part where Zirius is walking up the stairs and Skios is like keeping up with them, even like going faster than him, even though he's just like hunched old man. And Zirius wanted to like wear him out to prove a point, and he just never could because. Yeah, yeah, I think not yeah. Old man. yeah. Yeah, that was a that's a fun part to read. I think it was Compass, right? I don't think it was I think it was Compass rather than Zerius. But yeah, it was it's a oh. it's a fun part to read when you know when you know that uh, Skios is not who he seems to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then all of his whispering in his ear the whole time becomes different because it's for the consult. 
Or I guess most of the holy floor still thinks it's the Sistorin, but some of them know it's the consul. I think Akamian does, and I think Confis does, at least. Well, he seems uncertain. Um, but yeah, it's. It, I don't think it's clear in this book when exactly Skaos was replaced by the Skin Spy. Um, there definitely seems to be a uh, divergence or... Yeah, like a divergence between uh, Zerius and Skaos after Zerius meets up with the Kisharum, which is another thing I want to talk about later. Um, is that until then, like it seems that Skaos has been just with like that Zerius been doing everything that uh, Skaos told him to. Um, but after he after Zerius meets with the Kisharum and they make the deal that uh, they will basically sacrifice the Walker Holy War. Um, Scales somehow starts to sabotage a lot of what Zerius is doing. And it seems like he's also trying to pit Zerius against Confess and sort of make Confess, um, I don't know, like how do you describe how would you describe it? Like do do something that will make make Zerius too scared or too upset with Proaz that they will he will just get rid of him. So it's it's not really clear when exactly uh Scales gets replaced, but I from I I I wonder if 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 that was like somewhere between two those two uh, those two um, those two parts or if or if that happened before before that. I should go back and read the couple conversations with them. Tell us usually like talks about it. I remember, or I mean, Baker usually talks about it. So I remember at one point it talking about like one of the em I think the emperor looks at Skios and just notices his skin's weird. Like he's not sweating at all and his his skin just looked strange. So at yeah. that point Skios was already weird. I don't remember when that was. It was before the walking up the stairs scene. Yeah, I think I think we can we can probably all agree that when they're when like Confus is chasing him up the stairs, like that's he's for sure been already replaced by a skin spy. Yeah, that's not an old man anymore. Yeah, um, but I think like you kind of you, like we, maybe we should give uh, give uh, serious kudos for like discovering the first skin spy in the in the Holy War. Uh, like he's always gets the reputation of being like extremely paranoid. But uh, the two people he suspects of, of uh, betraying him are, are Skaos and Confess. And, 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 and in reality, like they both, uh, that's what they at least consider, if not outright do it. So, um, you know, g give Sirius some slack. Um, I, I actually, actually, like reading through this book now, like um, he's such a fun character to read. Like, he, he, I mean, he's hilarious, he's very paranoid. Uh, but sometimes he's very smart without necessarily intending to be. What was that purposeful of Kellis or an accident of Kellis that Xerius noted noticed him looking at Skios? Is anything an accident with Kellis though? There's a moment like in this part it talks about like the conquering of him trying to like take 
control of the holy roar and how there's just too many variables for him to walk through the probability to find the path so he is limited but a little bit more information like will narrow the possibilities and that's what he's looking for yeah i think i mostly understood it as being an accident or not something that Kels intended um because up until that point, he didn't know that skin spies were a thing. And I don't think he intended for Scales to uh, get uh, get captured by the Emperor. Um, so I think it was, I, I thought it was an accident. Um, but who knows? So we can make accidents. There are, <laughs> there are unknowns on this conditioned ground he tries to walk. Maybe he like debates whether Skios is like sent by his father and he calculates his heart rate and all of his bodily functions and realize that his face is like a, just a shell. <laughs> I'm glad that he has limits though. When it's, it describes it as like fingers that come apart and like the palm is like the inside of the head. So it's like, like yeah, what? when his, when his uh, face opens up and he like wraps the this the claws around the Kamian's head and he's basically trying to bite his head off that that was uh, that was pretty insane. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we should start with how it the chapter starts about Proteus and the whole political intrigue game still getting played. Yeah, I, I will say that the way part four ends and then part five, it was a little weird the way that the way part four left off because you're a little confused. And then so it was a little kind of a change of pace with part five. Part four ends with them getting caught. Is that the mm -hmm. last thing that yeah. happened? Yeah. Part, and part five starts with Sabin, or I mean, with Proteus not being able to control Sabin and needing more food to feed all of these poor people that he's now in charge of and him still having to find a way to avoid the indenture just him going through a lot of stuff and yeah. feeling like he's losing yeah and he's also like pretty he's also pretty um upset about the fact that he constantly has to make compromises uh, between like, his faith and and um, the reality of the holy war, like we know, he's one of the most pious people who joined this uh, endeavor. Uh, but as as the leader of at least some of the the, the noblemen, he's constantly have to um, sacrifice his principles essentially um, for for the greater good. I guess. Well, that's at least that's how he puts it. Um, so he like, yeah, he allows, uh, he allows the Inrithi that joined the Holy War to sack the Inrithi Nansur villages to get food that the, uh, Emperor is refusing to provide them with, which also like, that's one of the things that puzzles me about the plot of this book that like, how, like, because there are all these people coming from all these different kingdoms, like thousands and thousands of people, like how is, how they, how do they expect 
the emperor to just give food to all of them. Like, I mean, he has his own people to feed, and now he's supposed to be feeding this like one hundred thousand people army. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if that's like based in history or if that's just a leap of like faith that we have to make. But I, I do find it a bit unrealistic. Like, where is all this food coming from? Like, are the all are the nans who are staying behind just going to starve? Is that what's going to happen? I think I think it might have something to do with that they they've stored up a lot of food over the past few years because they've been in like relative peace, so they probably will all starve a little, but there will be a lot less people to feed as the holy war goes on. And feeding and controlling an entire army becomes like a theme as we go on, kind of. But in history, there's times where like the religious power had to like lay down the law over the king for the religious reasons because really like whoever's in charge of the religion is in charge of like the people's hearts kind of so that's why in the end compass goes on this holy war even though they have no reason to send him anymore except for the hope that he can somehow take control because they lose. They lose this whole battle of wits. But we'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. It. I found the, this quote. It's kind of what you were talking about. And it's Akamian thinking about Proyas. And he thinks he's so changed. What happened to him? But even as he asked this, Akamian recognized the answer. Proyas suffered as all men of higher purpose must. The endless exchange of principles for advantages. No triumph without remorse, no respite without siege, compromise after anxious compromise until one's entire life felt defeat. It was malady mandate schoolman knew well. Yeah, so I did write down that quote as well. Oh, did you? He's like a he's like a cup that has to keep emptying himself into all the other cups around him to keep the scales tipped in his favor as they all like drain out. So he has to keep giving concessions and concessions. And then that becomes a big point, whether having a Sylvendi or having the emperor's nephew is more of a concession to their god. once we get to the argument at the end, the big debate. But I think it's Zinimus's cousin that was the one that ended up finding Nair and Kellis. And so like brings them to Proeus's tent instead of them getting taken by the emperor and probably Kellis or Nair would have became another Sylvendi slave to the emperor. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the cliffhanger you were referring to, Steve. 
that like at the end of part part four, we don't know exactly what is going to happen to Callus and your what the Conrians uh, who captured them, what they're going to do with them. Um, if they're just going to bring them in front of the emperor, or if there's some other purpose that they intend for them. And yeah, we find out here that Callus, uh, uh, not Callus. Froes has this idea to essentially replace uh, replace Confis with Nior, um, which is preposterous in itself, <laughs> uh, considering the history that they, the the two of them have. Well, that that at least Confis is not really aware of, but uh, Nior certainly is. Me? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Nair is an unlikely leader of the Holy War since he, like, believes in a holy other god. And it, like, talks about his philosophy and he thinks that all these games they play, like Janan or whatever it's called, is just a womanish game. Anything they do is just, is just like, purposeless and womanish to him but then to his own tribe he's like the womanish one because he got inflicted with the Dunyan's disease of, of contradiction I guess second guessing he's, kind he's of, really good at second guessing like oh he's leading me right where he wants me to go I'm just gonna refute everything he says which is how he's more powerful than the Dunyans pro probing. Now what it's called when the Dunyans do things. Kind of wondered if if that's a, a good thing that he's detached and he doesn't have that same mentality. He he's just making decisions based on what's best and doesn't have any, I guess, a stake or doesn't have. He doesn't have any emotion. He's just, you know. Wonder if that's a, a better a better leader for something like this. Are you are you talking about New York? Mm-hmm. Or Kellis. <laughs> I don't I don't know that I would describe New York as someone not someone not having emotion. Well, I mean, he, he as may as be far in as diff- the Holy War, I guess. I mean, oh, okay, okay. stake in it, yeah. Gotcha. He could just as easily kill the Inrithi or the Phanim. They're mm-hmm. both just kind of heathens in his eyes. Yeah. But I think the Phanim and him worship this, the same god. Sort of, maybe. I don't think we don't really learn much about the, the Phanim in, in this book. Um, except for the fact that, yeah, they, they do it's they they have uh the religion is monotheistic and they they worship just one single god um but i don't even know like i i wonder if if putting nior in in charge or or in, in command of the holy war like if that's even um like if they, if Pros act Pros actually needs him to be in charge or if he, if he, if he actually needs him as his general like I wonder to what extent it's just he's just sort of a um, 
like a token, like something that he can use to get rid of the need for confess, like to have like an counter argument against the emperor who's trying to like convince them that, you know, they cannot win against the Phantom unless they have confess. Um, so, so I wonder like to what extent that like New York is just, um, it's just an excuse or it's just just something they want to do that uh, Proyas will use in that argument. But like once they march out, like are they actually going to need New York? Um, or like, because I mean, they they'll have a lot of uh, they'll have a lot of uh, great noblemen, potentially some generals in that in the Holy War. Like, is really none of them going to going to be capable to to uh, command the the army against the Phantom? Um, I wonder. Nair seems to like have thought about this. His his uselessness as we go on, he was like thinking maybe he would be the general and he's like, no, I'll only ever be an advisor at at most. But you gotta remember that Kellis let him live and said that he needed him to teach him war. And there's one part through Kellis's vision where he says that he knows Nair's smart, like he understands his intellect is, is deep when it comes to war. This book, you yeah. get quite a few chapters, Kellis's eyes, where maybe later on you don't. <laughs> Sometimes um... things become too abstract to be like seen that closely. Yeah, I, I like the part during the audience where it's it's through Callus's POV and he's essentially like evaluating all the different lords that gather in, in the room. Um and he's basically like he's like deciphering their like reasons for why they joined the Holy War and like what their weak spots would be and how he could control them. Um that was pretty neat. Um there was a and we, part yeah. a, a part in that where like after he asks Proteus about all these people, Neri looks at him and says, Do you feast, Dunyan? Grow fat on faces? That part was intense. Like Kellis is eating up all these people's desires and ambitions just to see how to cook them up. And we do learn a lot about Kellis uh, in this part too, about um, kind of how he was just past experiences and things. So it, it felt like it focuses a lot on Kellis, which is a character that wanted to learn more about the whole time, but finally get more insight into him. Yeah, we get the we get the whole uh, sequence with him remembering back to when he was uh, when he was a small small kid, and he uh, first uh, encountered or like mastered the darkness that comes before. Um, when he, I, I don't, it's like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like when he got it, it was into sort of like a trance. Is is that how you would describe it? Like a, a deep meditation, some sort. Yeah, I kind of thought it was like a like a meditation. Um, now I can't be the only one who thought about repeating that phrase. To see what happens, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think I lag the concentration or the stamina. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, th uh, I don't think I could do it for seven days either. 
It's a, it's a long meditation. It's a big commitment. Then you got to have someone standing there to slap you when he realizes you're not thinking that and nobody can see what you're thinking currently. Except for the dungeon. Because Kella seems to be able to say what Sarway thinks before Sarway thinks. So. Yeah, that was a pretty interesting revelation. Um, when he's like, like we already know that they sort of communicated. Um, but then, like seeing him be actually read her thoughts as she's thinking them, just from looking at her face, it's pretty. Uh, it's, it's pretty stunning. Yeah, those few brief glimpses you get, like when <clears throat> Kellis is analyzing Skios or when he like wonders what men would think if they saw what he saw and talks about how he sees the 42 muscles behind people's faces instead of their actual faces, like how deeply that is. And there's more on that eventually. This is just one teaching of Kellis. I think what it says when he was 11, when he did that meditation. I and then they, don't remember the exact age. And then they throw the knife at the end and he, it's, what did it say? It said something intense, like it wasn't even Kellis. Oh, it says the place where Kellis once existed, extended his palm and caught the knife. The place where Kellis once existed. And then the way it went, like, he, <clears throat> he started, <coughs> I'm sorry. He started, like, reciting the words, and all of these thoughts stemming from his passion started coming in, trying to, like, take over his repetition of the words. He just had to keep fighting and fighting against his own passions, whatever, like, was coming before. And then after the first day, and the pragma yelled at him because he, like, broke focus for a second and he regained focus. He just kept going and going. And on the fourth day, I think he, like, soiled himself and just thought he was a stone because he was getting, like, deeper into, I guess, as you call it, a trance. And then by the seventh day, there was no interference like there was the first day. All the interference was gone. And so he mastered passion, I guess, is how it put it. Yeah, but then do you think him grabbing the knife, is that, was that some, was it a conscious decision that he made? Or is that like a reflex that comes from the dark that's that's not part that that's the part i wasn't clear on like no, I, was I it kind of took it as like reflex or like a um not conscious but what do you yeah. think Jen? to like yeah it was like a reflex to make him realize that he was still himself because kind of like when he was <clears throat> first got out and he stared at this twig for 
I forgot how many days it was, but just days and days, he got like lost in some kind of weird trance with all the new possibilities and probabilities. It was like... Yeah, Kale staring at twigs is one of the most me more memorable passages from the prologue. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. A super intellect can get stumped by something smaller than a stump. Made of the same thing. But yeah, coming coming back to the to the emperor and uh, Neor and and the, the the gathering of the of the nobles, um, I think, like maybe part of the reason why why Proyas is sort of proposes to uh, to appoint Neor as the general is that like he basically calls the bluff that the 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 Icures have played. Because, like, I, I think he kind of anticipates that even if, even even if they re refuse to sign the indenture, like if in in the end, uh, Zarius will still send Confis with them because he he probably wants to have a stake in the Holy War, and like the Holy War will be marching through the Nensurium anyway. Um, so I think that might be also part of Proeus's reasoning. Um, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I feel like he thinks the whole time that if the Shrai had just told him that it had happened, that it would happen. Because really, the Emperor can't like deny the Shrai, but... I, maybe he just doesn't know all of that behind the scenes were <clears throat> workings of them. But yeah, so in the end, Callus uh, decides to intervene uh, because he realizes that uh, maybe uh, having Confis at the helm of the Holy War wouldn't be such a great idea. Um, because he's pretty, uh, unscrupulous and doesn't necessarily have the best in, in interest of the Holy War in mind. Um, so he decides to intervene and basically convinces the Lords that, uh, it's okay, or it's, it's better, it's, it's, it's better to choose the Skilvendi over the Nens or Emperor, which I think is outrageous, uh, but somehow they buy it. Yeah, and at the same time, <clears throat> Kellis is telling Nair that after Moingus has been in the mountains for, what, <clears throat> among men for 30 years, that he's got to be way more powerful and he needs more than the Gnosis to defeat him. He needs a nation. And he also and, needs magic or sorcery. And, <clears throat> the Gnosis and... Seems like this Sylvendi sees him talking to the Mandate and tells him that the Mandate are not the school that's ever going to give their sorcery away. But Kellis already has a king in this as teacher, so... Yeah, and Kellis can be very convincing. Like, he, he already basically has a commune wrapped around his finger. Um, 
and everyone. Everyone except and, the people that wear the thing over their face, which were the Imperial Psych. Are they the ones that wore porcelain masks, I think? Mm, I think that's the uh, a Scarlet's. Yeah, the Scarlet Spires, or, yeah. <clears throat> they don't know it, but that helps them against Kellis, since part of his oh. ability is to read the faces. True, I, I haven't thought of that, but that's, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He can't really read their faces. Skios was completely unreadable, and so he knew he was, like, an abomination, and he wondered if it was one of his dad's tricks. Yeah, and we sort of get, um, it gets insinuated, or, like, Kellis suggests to Neor that it's very likely that Moangus is uh, Kisharim. Because he's in a dream, so it had to be magic. <clears throat> Even Neor realizes that. And he sent them from Shaima, or at least he called uh, Kalos the Shaima, which is the seat of the Gisharim. Um, so it seems uh, it it seems likely to be true. And one thing that uh, that happened in part two that I I didn't I try not to bring too much attention to when when we read through it, uh, but if you go back to the scene in part two. Uh, there is a meeting between Zarius and a Kisharim. And uh, the Kisharim is described as being pale and having scars like a Sylvendi. Mm. Um, so Malahat. it makes you... Yeah, and his name is like Malahat or something. Like it starts with an M. So it, it makes you wonder. <clears throat> it makes and you wonder like how many <throat> Kisharim are there which are pale, fair-skinned, and have scars like swazans on their hands and then to <clears throat> a little bit later near talks about how he helped malingus escape by giving him some dye and said that malingus had carved swazans all across his arms in order to act like a sylvandi to get off the step so he's like a looks like Kellis, but he's got a <clears throat> whole bunch of swazans all across his arms and then there's some some powerful mage named Malahat that they they say could be even more powerful than the most powerful Sishwarim, <clears throat> but he's not like of their uh, ascendant, so he can't be the leader. Hmm. He's from somewhere else. They can't ever have an outsider lead him, but he's still more powerful. This weird one with a bunch of swazons on his arms. Coincidence? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Nair realizes he's kind of doing what the Sylvendi did at the Battle of Kyuth. He's just rushing at Moingus without thinking at all <clears throat> about how powerful he's become and about how he has no chance to fight him one on one. It's like the idea that he's charging it, not that it's like the actual thing once he gets to it will still destroy him so he's having to rethink his strategy now maybe he needs kellis and maybe he needs this whole nation like kellis says well it's i think maybe part of like new york not really 
thinking about it is that I don't know he just gets so like he just gets so obsessed with the idea that getting to Moengus will solve all of his life's problems that maybe thinking too much about how he's going like what he's going to do once he's there or like how he's going to kill Moengus it's like if he starts questioning that that might uh, make him more or, or less um less resolved let's say um to actually carry on through with it um like maybe thinking too much about like how solid his plan is or how not solid it is would uh, make him realize that uh, this is whole this whole adventure has been a really bad idea um and somehow, like now, he's find himself in in the middle of the like Enrithi, uh, Enrithi uh, civilization, which is like the uh, one of like his arch, one of his arch enemies in the entire world. And somehow he's become their general that who's supposed to lead them against another nation that he also does not care about. So. Using the son he hates to get the dad he hates with a nation he hates to kill the other nation he hates. <laughs> yeah, he, he did seem a lot like a fish out of water in that section. Like he, um, you, you never really know what he was going to do or what he was going to say. Like I said, I was, wasn't sure how he'd react to, you know, having to almost, um, you know, like justify why he should be there and, uh, Kind of how we fit in the whole thing. So that that was that thought that was a fun section there where he was, you know, they were trying to, uh, you know, make a case for him to to be that person instead of Confus. Yeah, I, I thought he actually showed a lot of restraint, mm-hmm. um, considering like how uh, violent and maybe unpredictable we've seen him to be in in, in the previous chapters. I thought he I thought he handled this up pretty pretty well when he was talking to the emperor. Um to, he was sort of trying to explain to him like why Well, I mean it was kinda obvious to him that they were trying to provoke him and to make him to sort of discredit him in front of all the other Enrithi lords. Um I thought he handled this up pretty well. Um basically explaining explaining to them that uh he doesn't care about uh Zinere, the the former king of tribes. How he does not consider him kin anymore because he's been sort of unmanned or um, blinded, and um, I don't know what other horrible things they did to that poor guy. Um, I, yeah, I thought is I thought that was pretty pretty interesting um, explanation of like the differences between the cultures and like how the Skilvendi view their uh, kinship with the other, with, uh, with other Skilvendi and how, uh, how that may differ from the, uh, the way that uh, Inrithi think of their um, fellow, uh, fellow man. And that was a lot of, uh, this part was a lot of that, just kind of, um, you know, trying to, uh, trying to prove, you're trying to get, um, Nair and into that position, but um, it, it was fun seeing all of these different characters we've been following come together and interact. 
Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's like a convergence. Like if you've been wondering, or like if you've been, yeah, if 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 you've been a bit confused or weren't sure, like why we're why we've been following all these different threats and all these different characters throughout the book, now they finally come together. And uh, I think because we yeah we saw them build up individually and separately, and now like they finally come together, and you see them. Uh, you see them talk to each other, uh, talking to each other, and and you like you get their reactions to 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 one another. Like that's uh, that's it's very rewarding, I think. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and it's not like uh, Malazan; it doesn't take a few books for the convergence, at least, to converge immediately. Mostly, mostly immediately. It was a very slow-going book, and not a lot happened, though. I noticed by the end of it, really, this is like a the convergence of the men of the Holy War. I guess the trilogy is the Holy War itself. That's why the next book is considered the most action-packed, because politics is slow. Well, that's that's the part I love. I, I, I didn't, I don't, I would, I would disagree with this, with the, with the statement that nothing happened in this book. Um, I think a lot of happened, especially in terms of politics. There was a lot of politicking, a lot of, a uh, lot of uh, conspiring and plans not going the way that people anticipate them. And then people having to adjust their plans to different circumstances. Um, I mean, it's like 600 pages. Something something, something had to happen, right? I think, I think um, as far as like things happening, I think it, was, it wasn't as much as other books, but I think a lot of it was setting up, like, you know, identifying parts of the world and different factions and people and history. So in that, in that case, when you look back on it, it's, it was a lot in the first book that may not have happened uh, story-wise, but there's a lot of build-up. Like, there's a lot of... Um, like the the different religions and the holy war and all this other stuff so and that it's it's packed full of stuff just lots to uh because we we were able to talk for six hours or for five hours about it so right yeah there, there was and there was the battle of youth there was the vulgar holy war which were two pretty big battles there was three or four battles of just intellect, which are the, I guess, all the kings and all the powerful people vying for power, which I consider those a battle too. I did not like this book, but I was imagining it as a first-time reader. And I guess I haven't read a lot of fantasy recently, so I don't have a lot to compare it with. I have like the game. Game of Thrones, uh, Anna Smith Sparks' first book, and all of Scott Lynch's books, I think I read. Those are really the only fantasy I've read recently. So I took a pretty decent break from reading. And comparing them, like, they're 
Anna's Miss Sparks book, not a whole lot happened to the first book. Kind of just converging. One big battle or two, three, maybe. Yeah, I think, the, especially in a trilogy and fantasy, I think the first book is typically used for, like, you know, world building or, you know, it kind of getting a feel for the world that's being lived in and the characters and the histories. And then it usually the second and third book is when it starts to kind of, uh, you know, feels like more feel like more happens but i have heard some i have i've have seen some reviews about this book about the uh the first book in this series that nothing happened like absolutely nothing happened i don't know if was, <laughs> uh, i think you know um i think it, it all depends too on just the type of book that you're used to reading because a book like malice it's like action-packed but it I, I was bored the whole time because it was just battle after battle after battle so it just kind of depends on the speed that you're looking for too is you know what you're used to i think is a big part of it but i i think i'm glad that the second book is available to us because i would be really impatiently waiting for the for the second book if it wasn't already available that'd be a tough way to to wait on the second book yeah i think it helps if you think of the trilogy as like essentially one book split into three parts, which means that the first book really is just the setup, and then uh, second and the second and third book are sort of the like the main plot and then the climax and um, an ending of, of of that like one book that is Prince of Nothing. And like I do agree with you, like yes, there there's a lot of uh, exposition, there's a lot of world building done in the first book. Um, especially like the first part, the, the prologue and, and the, the first part with the comment is, is very exposition heavy, but, uh, like I'm someone who loves world building and also I love politics in fantasy. So for me, like for me, that's, this is essentially the perfect book. Like it doesn't really get better. Yeah. And our Scott Baker's philosophy degree <clears throat> that he intertwines into all of like the writing so every like few paragraphs there's a sentence that you can just sit back and reflect on your whole life and how that sentence <laughs> applies before you move on in the book there's lots of really heavy wording especially because these people they live in like a really heavy world so they're experiencing this and their experiences are changing and it allows you to like use these people in this fantasy world as an example of things in your own life through the philosophies that our Scott Baker's like playing with as we walk on his conditioned ground. Since these are his books, this is his conditioned ground. Yeah, there, there are some. Like I said, there's even some just sentences you can read over and over again and, and dissect. Um, I think my favorite part of the whole book about it is the prologue, because I think I can go back now and reread the prologue, and it, I'll have a whole totally different view of it. There's just so much in that prologue, so much to... And there may even be more to it when we continue. I'm, both of you know better than I would, but there's, is there... Well, I don't know <laughs> how to ask, but I'm guessing <clears throat> that there there's more in the prologue that will come that will make more sense or that will view differently later in the series that's what i'm guessing yeah i mean I, i've read 
four and a half of these books and there are still things in the prologue that I don't really have a reference for. So I can only imagine that going back to it after you've finished the entire series would be very uh, rewarding and we would definitely see a lot of things make much more sense or maybe see them through a, a different lens. Maybe that no man battle changes a lot if you've read the whole entire books. Yeah, we haven't really... I, I, I don't even know if we learn anything about the non-man in this book. I don't recall anything apart from the prologue. I don't think we ever go back to them. No. Maybe a comment mentions them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know if he's had them in his dreams yet. It's mostly been him fighting the Sylvendi. Yeah, which is, I mean, that dynamic also is interesting uh, between Nayor and Akamian. With, uh, I mean, we know that the Ninsur hate the Skilvendi, but I think it might be even more intense for Akamian, who's basically, like, he knows the Skilvendi through the dreams he, he has every night. And, uh, like, he remembers them as the people that uh, helped, br helped bring about the, the first apocalypse. So he's not very, uh, he's not very happy to see Nior. Uh, now, now he has like a Sylvendi, an Anis Rimber, and the Consult all like dangled in front of him, which are all like these far off dreams that he used to have. There's a part in it where they were t like talking about seeing the Sylvendi, and he's like, I remember a dream where they fought, and he's like, the, the battle was right here, and then he was like, oh yeah, this was called, I forgot what he called it. It was like a different town a thousand years ago, just a small town. But Kellis, or I mean, Kamian's like lived through that. So, so how his like steep history is in these books. The capital used to be some little baby town a thousand years ago. And the Kamian's like walked both. Yeah, but definitely there are a lot of warning signs with the consult to making an appearance after 300 years. Uh, the Anasarimber returning, which is supposedly signify the uh, signal the end of the world again. Um, and then the Skilendi. Uh, it doesn't seem to bode well for a commune and everyone in three C's, I guess. I've tried to, to not read the, I, I made the mistake of reading the, uh, the synopsis on one of the books in the second, <laughs> the second series. Um, but it, yeah, I try to stay away from even looking at the titles and things because I think it'll give some things away. <laughs> but in terms of how much happens it, just thinking about that is I think, um, looking back on it on the first book, I think a lot of character work is done too, because we know a lot about the characters. I think, um, and we've talked a lot of, even after the first part, we talked a lot about characters and um, kind of what makes them tick and what, you know, um, their traits and things like that. So in that, in that sense, I think a lot of a lot of time is spent on characters too. Yeah, I know their ambitions more than <clears throat> I knew most other characters in other books. I think what like drives their souls, mm -hmm. just because I think it's just R. Scott Baker's prose. And the way he 
fleshes things out is just too good. He just is too has too much ability at it, but it would take a lot of a lot more pages for other authors to flesh out these characters as well as he did in this one book. You know, because I, I feel like I know these characters after one book better than I know a lot of characters after a trilogy. Yeah, I think he the way he writes characters is very it's very compelling, but also like it's a big focus of the books themselves. Like he does take his time to explain like who these characters are and where they're coming from and uh, how they perceive the world and how they perceive themselves or their role in the world. Um, so I think it's, it's it's a big part of his writing for sure. Um, and it's like one of the was one of the things I love about this series so much. Yeah, they all and have he, their <clears throat> different, really deep problems, and they're all contemplating them in their own ways, based off what they see in each other, I guess, kind of. Just as his, like, the begin, we're all just reflections of each other in the end. Maybe we don't control the movements of our own soul. Maybe someone can see before and move them, or maybe it's too deep to see. <laughs> Speaking of which, I think we should uh, maybe talk a little about uh, a little bit about uh, Esmanet and, and Surway. I don't think we have really touched on them this far yet, uh, that, but that, especially as she finds another skin spy, probably. He's a, what, a tattooed officer of the Eothic Guard. Oh, you think he's a skin spy? I, I didn't consider that option. Hmm, hmm. I just assume he was a random guy she decided to have sex with. Well, she, she saw Black Seed and started running. That's oh, what yeah. it said. Hmm. That's right. I, so I, thought she... it was, I thought it was a memory, though. Maybe I misread the scene, but I thought she was remembering back to when she uh, had the encounter with the with the architect. No, yeah. that was in her. That was in her room. I this thought it was, was like, like a. I thought she was like having a like a flashback or a hallucination. I don't know if it was literally or if it was happening or if it, she was just. Um, if, so, if I thought she was like um, scarred or she was having hallucinations and and seeing things that weren't really happening, but I didn't consider it being an actual. Black Seed. <laughs> yeah, I also thought it was a it was a flashback, um, but maybe I don't know. I, hmm. I might have misread it. Um, well, just keep in mind there's maybe something more than Sarsalus, a tall blue, Eothic guardsman with blue tattoos that might be his skin spy too. Hmm. Might be whatever Sarsalus is. Yeah, well, I think well, it's it's. I think it's fair to say that. Uh, I think it's fair to conclude that Sarcellus is a skin spy at this point, isn't it? Like we we have heard. I think it was the architect. He did refer to Sarcellus's face <clears throat> and sort of making it open. And, and if we rem if we remember, a came a like was chasing that guy who was following him, and when he caught him, his face was different. That wasn't Sarcellus that was somebody else. So Sarsalus and 
Skios and them are not unique. Who knows how many there are, but I think that was proof that there was at least one more because Akamian reflected back on that after he had seen what they can do and was like, have I been being followed the whole time? And then he reflects on how all his like, students died and then he thinks about Esnet who just like slept right outside of his camp and ran away because he didn't recognize her because he was too in his head from finally seeing the consult. So he just like walked right by Esnet and she freaked out and ran away. Yeah, Esnet makes a lot of decisions in, in this part that I don't know if I necessarily understood. So like first she goes to the market and she, uh, she yeah, like she, she hooks up with this guy she's never seen. Um, to first it seemed like she's doing it for money, but then like same thing that she did with the architect. She just she like she gets the money from the from the man, and then she just throws it away. Throws it away. Um, like wh why do you think she did that? Like why do you think she had the need to uh, to drag this guy into a dark alley and uh, do stuff with him? And and why and what like why did she? Like, why, why did she ask for the money when she when she did when she uh, didn't keep it afterwards? I wasn't sure if that was just her going back to what um, I don't say she felt comfortable with, but going back to whatever she like that was her her way of feeling uh, wanted in her own twisted way, I guess. Um, but she yeah she does a lot of things that I, I just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I. <laughs> This is her being her, or if there's something else to it. Very unpredictable. Yeah, yeah I, I... she is confusing. <laughs> and the reason why he wants to, I guess, is clear from Sarsalis, because like, they have some kind of affinity for being where their architect was. Because he's the guy that had the black seed, the other guy. So they have just an affection for their architect and they just want to be as close to him as possible. I guess he's kind of their god. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I wonder if it was just like her trying to uh, gain back some some level of control over her own life again. Because she has spent these past few months living with Cicelos and has become sort of dependent on him. Um, so I, I wonder if it was like her way of showing she doesn't need anymore. She doesn't like, she doesn't just do the things that he tells her to do. Um, she can make her own decisions. Even if for some reason she decides not to go to a commune immediately, uh, which is another puzzling decision she makes. Um, she, she tells Sarsalus that it was a Kamian actually. When she goes back that night, oh, yeah, he's like, he who, who did you sleep yeah. with? And he's like, I came in, even though it was a lie. And then he's like almost beats her, but doesn't. Which I also was very confused by. Um, like, first of all, why does he keep Esmond around anyway? Um, and then, like, what does he actually want to do with her? Like, does, like... Does he care about 
her or like is he jealous of a comic like is there a reason why they don't why the console does not want her to uh to to uh reunite with a camion um i i, I kind of took it as they're using her as a way to get to uh a camion is like that's their doorway into maybe predicting what he may be doing next or where he or a way to like the, hit like she's like their go between this where her purpose is but she she could be a tool hmm. potentially and if you could have a potential tool you might as well keep it yeah that's a great point katarina about um her feeling like she has control again i think um you know her feeling like she can she has uh she can um i don't want to say um how do i say this that she she can still seduce other men or she can uh still get that reaction out and you know kind of she can find her own way if she wanted to i guess is the way to say it yeah um and i mean she does decide to leave cercellus eventually uh, and go see a commune and then there's this whole scene where she's walking through the camp and it's sort of it's like almost bizarre, like everyone's celebrating, there's men groping her and um she kinda has to like almost fight to get get through the camp to to where Akamian's uh settled. Um and then she's observing the, the all the men sitting at the campfire from, from like from the dark. And I, I don't I, I really like that scene. Like it was very uh it's very atmospheric. Um, like, and it also felt like very vivid, like when she's walking through the cam and everyone's just like grabbing at her. It was, uh, was pretty intense. I think they were, they were celebrating because they're finally going to march, right? Is that why they were? Yes. I think you have people who were ready for a war who just sit around and wait. So I think they were kind of, um, it, it might've fell on some festival day too, just oh. so happened to be some like the beginning of fall or something. I don't know exactly what time of year it was, but <clears throat> they like talked about a festival and how they were wearing like kind of special clothes that were supposed to see the sunset or something. Oh, that's right. And then Kellis mm -hmm. and Zinemisco and P and laugh and Kellis <laughs> see Kellis sees Essenet but doesn't say anything. Zinimus falls asleep at the campfire waiting for Akamian because Akamian got summoned by Contis to go see Skios for the first time. And when he seen Skios, he didn't like even mention that he was that he knew what he was, but Skios like seen him and freaked out and broke the chains and started speaking in some weird tongue to him and tried to fight him. That's why I think that in Confus's heart of hearts, he knows that the mandate are right on what Skios is. But Xerius kind of placed off like it's the Sishwarim. But I think Confus knows he's seen the truth. I feel like it says that there is truth here today or something. Yeah, I think Confus at least seemed um, wavering or undecided. But I think, in, to be fair, in, in Zerius's defense, I don't think that concluding that the Kisharum are involved is such, it's, it's not such a stupid uh, inference to make. 
because uh, like we know that uh, you like the other sorcerers they can see the the mark of their magic, um, and I mean the like the Inrithi are getting ready to to march into a war against the Gisharim and the Fanon. So it would make sense that they would have spies in uh, it's in the, the Nantur. The logical assumption, I would say, but they don't see the past like Akamian sees the past, I guess. Nobody does. That's why I think most people there who know what happened blame this Ishwarim. Yeah, I think it's a logical conclusion, but uh, wrong one. <laughs> in, in, um, in regards to the, to the skin spies, I wondered if it was the same person or if there was multiples of the... Skin spies? Mm -hmm. Well, they have to, like, take, take over the entire life of someone if they're going to infiltrate, so they can't bounce from one to the other unless the other one becomes wasted. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you have Scales, which spends most of its time with, with Sirius, and then you have Cercellus, who, like, before coming to moment was in Sumna working for for maintenance so I think it would be hard for them to be the same person if like if there have to be in multiple places and uh, basically impersonate these people like 24 7 um and like we I think even like when Cercellus and uh the architect are talking about the other skin spy like it's sort of implied that that other skin spies like it's not Cercellus, it's someone else just what they are we don't know yet we're only one book deep yeah well we know what they're not they're not uh a product of sorcery i think that's uh, that's been established Unless it's the Sushwarim, which is yeah. markless. Yeah, but uh, I think we know the truth. Akamian sure seems to know. He's the only one I would say in a position to... Just the fact that it flipped out when it seen Akamian and called him Mandati and tried to eat his face kind of signifies that... It's an old enemy. Yeah. And I mean, it does leave you wondering, like, who else is a skin spy? Like, who else have they uh, captured, like, got hold of? Like, who else has been replaced by this? Know you, uh... you know, Kellis is capable. He's, like, one of the only ones capable of seeing them. Because you know how Ikari found out by that weird glare Kellis had at him when he was giving him the thousand-eyed stare. Yeah. Again, like, Zira's uh, accidentally very competent. <laughs> it's true, but he still lost the political intrigue part. Confus is marching, they're getting nothing. Proteus and Nair seem to outsmart him. <clears throat> I think well, there was a part it talked about like Goshen opening up. He had like two scrolls. Seemed like Goshen had the choice to unlock 
the red scroll or the red sealed scroll or the black sealed scroll and one of them would have been for the emperor and one of them would have been for Proteus. And it was up to him to decide who was telling the truth. I couldn't tell exactly because it did mention that there were two scrolls that he had. He like picked one and opened it after he heard all the debates. Yeah, that's uh, I, I also wasn't sure, but that's I, I that's also how I understood. It makes um, sense for scene. him to keep the choice like open and give his trusted advisor the like you make the choice once you hear the debate who wins let's side with the winners because yeah i mean they not, do... he's not there so he's got to trust somebody but his yeah. writing needed to be there so maybe he needed the two contradictory scrolls i mean they did say that gotian the what's his name what's the, what's his title the commander of the grand, grand master of the shrill knights Right, right. He's the grandmaster. Um, like they, they did say that he was there to make the final decision. So it wouldn't make sense if Maitinet had already written down what he wanted them to do. Like it wouldn't have made sense for Gotian to judge anything, like or listen to the 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 nobleman's arguments if 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 there was already a decision mate um so i i think i think yeah i i think i understood it the same way you did daniel um but like i mean kind of it kind of leaves you wondering though like if if callus hadn't intervened would they uh like would they have arrived at the same decision because at, at like at that point it seemed like uh gotian was leaning more towards uh uh having the emperor have his have his way and then kellis made him realize that they give twice giving to the emperor they give someone they kind of despise as their leader as well as all the land that they conquer when they could just have someone they despise as their leader who doesn't want no land at all that sounds yeah, like but... a better thing but it's kind of a false dilemma, isn't it? Like, they don't know anything about Nayor. Like, they don't have anyone to vouch for him. And they know that uh, Confess is, like, he's a great general. Like, everyone everyone acknowledges that, even if they don't like him personally. Uh, and he he defeated the Skelvendi at Cayuth. So he, uh, like, he has the resume. And uh, and the Nensor are in Rithi. So, in theory, they should have the... Uh, other Inrithi's uh, best interest at heart. Which yeah, Kel we, no, we some, <clears throat> somehow made him out to be a heathen too, even though he's part of them. It was a trick. A trick of truth, like the Dunyan like to play. Yeah. Though we know that we know that Zarius has made a deal with the Phantom, so um actually maybe like so like having the like it might like the Skillendi in this in this particular situation might be more trustworthy than the uh, than the Emperor. He certainly would, because we know his motivation has nothing to do with, like, any of it. He just wants to get there and kill one guy. That's all he wants to do. Yeah, just <laughs> needs to kill the, like, other, like, thousands to get through it to him. And he's, like, already in his own mind, like, giving up the holy war to the devil by bringing Kellis into it. 
he's acknowledged that the Holy War is like seemingly going to get taken. I feel like it came in in one of the passages before the books talks about how like he came and just took the whole war from them. Nobody was expecting it because it was so many men with so many like hopes and dreams and then one person stepped forward and just somehow commandeered it all. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing. Uh, like if you were wondering at the beginning what holy war Okamian is writing about, I think it's pretty clear at this point that he's writing about the war that is about to happen. Um, that all the all the epigraphs, the whole history, it's he's writing about something that we haven't actually experienced yet. And uh, I don't it might be uh, it might be interesting to go back and reread those epigraphs. Um, it might give you maybe some little hints about what's going to happen. Direction. Just yeah, but, the, yeah but I mean they are kind of ambiguous. Like it's not like they're gonna spoil the the whole uh, whole trilogy for you. Definitely like not. Yeah, because you know that he's going to survive for at least a while. He's a terrible. He's a terrible spy, isn't he? <laughs> it's true. Every instance, he just is terrible in it. He thinks he's doing the right thing in the immediate next paragraph. He's like, "Oh man, it was a mistake." Yeah, I, he should I didn't... just give up being a spy. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the um, the Grandmaster of the Scarlet Spires seems to help hold him in quite high esteem, at least initially. When they yeah. uh, when he comes to visit him to the uh, to uh, what's his name Zainimus's camp, but that was also a pretty wild encounter. I kind of thought that was just based on reputation or just kind of word of mouth and not actually what he's done. Is that unfair to say that he just kind of has a, he's made a name for himself, but. Yeah, the, the mandate themselves are the most feared wizards in the whole yeah. place. He talks about how he could like murder dragons. Never seen dragons yet, but. The Kamian could murder all of the dragons, he says. How he could just bring so much terror to these people. And we've seen him go against, I guess, the consult. And we had him cowering real quick till he got his face tentacles on him. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't see uh, Kamian do a lot of magic in this book. Um but I think there was also the part where um, Eliazarius, oh God, what's his name? Eliazarius? I don't know. Um, yeah. It's like, there's too many E's and A's in, in, in that name. Um, <laughs> like Eliazarius Eli also seems to think that um, Akamian murdered the Geshruni the one of the 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 slave guard yeah i think he was a slave wasn't he um the one that akamian tried to recruit in like one of the first one of the first chapters 
so Elzerius seems to think that Akamian did that, and also on top of that, he uh, like took his face. So they look in the records and find one more instance where it had happened before that, I guess. But the body was too messed up for them to know who it was. Yeah, but the yeah, I mean, the implication from that being that uh, they, there may be uh, another spy among the Scarlet Spires or in, in Carithusel, right? Yeah. And to them, it's the Sichuan, they think, or the Mandate. They think it's the Mandate, but the Kamian knows it wasn't him, so... For all of these people, you can understand why they think it is who they think with their, like, biased narratives. They only get to see through their eyes, whereas we get to see through all the different eyes, so we get a better feel of who's being played and who's not. As long as we can trust the people's whose eyes we get to see the world through. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I like about the, the characters in, in this book that, um, like, they're all pretty, like, most of them are pretty intelligent. Um, and they arrive at logical con conclusions, but then because they lack certain information, the conclusions they make are just wrong. And we know that because we get to see the, uh, we, we know the, we know more of the circumstances that, uh, that surround them uh, than they themselves, because we get to see them from other people's points of views. Uh, but they're not stupid people. They're just uh, lacking information or they're biased in some other ways, but they're all like, they're not dumb. Like they're generally pretty smart people, including Eliezerus. And yet they're still all almost like Lewis to Kellis. That's what he says anyways. According to him, they're all so much like Lewis. True. <clears throat> and they talk about like Janan, how they play Janan, and it's like the it's pretty much like the exact game that Kellis like really plays. They play it in like mock. Like to make fun of each other and to one-up each other in small ways whereas Kellis is just playing to one-up them all at once. And you see him being like the pious guy, like people lean down to beg to him. He's like, oh, no, don't beg to me. Get up, get up. <laughs> so I, he's I like trying to appear like he's humble, like he's nothing unless he has to say something profound and then he obviously does so everyone's starting to like see more in him than he is just like Sarway does he magically got her pregnant and he knows all the words she says and he's just a walking god and no one else sees it yet she's the most pliable mind that he's encountered it seems like Lewis was pretty pliable Sarway was really broken when he came. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder, like, is, she, is it because she's so simple? Let's, let's put it that way. Or is it because she wants, like, she wants to be, uh, she wants to be played. 
like it's, it's something that she like herself encourages or opens up to um it, like she, like she, it does seem like she, she wants to be understood by someone she wants to have someone who seems to care about her and for her um and Kel, like Kellis does that for her, or at least he pretends to do that for her. So I wonder if it's, if like, is it just that she's so, so stupid or so easy for him to, to, to work? Or is it that she's like willingly giving herself to him? Which also leads me to uh, the scene where like he finally agrees, agrees to uh, sleep with Sir Wei was is something that she's wanted a long time. He's resisted until now. And then finally he uh succumbs. And I, I wasn't really sure. Like I wanted to know what you thought, like why why did he do it and why was it at that particular moment? Because I, I wasn't sure I wasn't really sure what triggered that. Hmm. It's like her position between the face Kella showed her, which is like the caring god that is telling her she needs to suffer for some reason against like the complete barbarian that Nair is, like polar opposites. And she loves one while gets abused by the other. When, when we know what Kellis is, he's technically abusing her too. He's just a, like using love to abuse her, probably. And why, we don't know yet. But for Kellis, everything's a tool. His breath, his words, his hunch, his gait when he walks, every single thing he does is somehow calculated towards something. Yeah, it kind of took that as that's why he, he gave in is because there was a reason that he felt like he had to do it at that moment or he um, she needed it to happen for she needed it to happen so he could do what he needed to or so he could have the right um, I want to say influence or the kind of it, it was just because he does see her as a tool um, that's just what he needed to do to keep her a tool, I guess we could say the way I kind of took it. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess one of the ways that, she, like, one of the ways that she is a tool is uh, he uses her to torture Nayor. So I wonder if, mm. like, that also had anything to do with it. Well, Nayor immediately was like super mad and like came out of the place with like almost naked with the sword. And saw Kellis and was like, "My prize." So. Maybe it's a game Kellis is playing. Kellis hmm. only plays games. That's what Nair says. They only play games. And since Nair is like... Un uncontrollable to Kellis, because what how Moingus broke him, he needs to find another way. So he's looking for his tools that he can use. Maybe that's why Sarway even got to live in the first place when Nair was like, leave her behind. And Kellis was like, no, I, I need her. Hmm. Dunyan don't need anyone. And 
unless they're tools for abusing other people at some point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I mean, Cal uh, Nayori does. Yeah, like he draws out he draws out the sword, but he doesn't actually do anything. Like he doesn't go and try to kill Kellis or Sirway. So uh, I guess Kellis is doing something right, where he has somehow Nayor figured out in ways that are not necessarily uh, comprehensible to me yet. <laughs> Or he's just planting seeds for later that could be usable. Who knows how far ahead he sees right now. But towards the end of the book, he did like finally say he was stepping, stepping onto conditioned ground. Like he sees a path now by being like the humble guy who hears God's voice. Instead of being like the cocky, arrogant, I am the prophet, everyone listen to me, he needs to like slowly turn everyone. Which Zinimus loves him now, and Kamian seems to love him now. Saraway loves him now. Proyas seems pretty smitten. Yeah, I mean, like, Akamian agrees to teach Callus the, the Gnosis, and then... Not when he just just school so far. oh right right you're right um well yeah he he agrees to be his teacher and, and teach him about the the three c's and uh also when he's supposed to make a report to the mandate he decides not to uh mention Kels or he decides not to uh not not to make that call at all because he doesn't want them to get too anxious about the Anarissa Rimber showing up uh, to the Holy War. Because they yeah, obviously, they all know the, the the prophecy. I don't know if he thinks they'll just kill him. So he like, maybe the prophecy won't be true. Or if they'll just try to get him and torture him to make him like their tool. Everyone's trying to make everyone their tools. This book also got me thinking, like, what do you think about the existence of God in Irwa? Because either you have an opinion on the existence of God in Irwa. In other books, like, there are gods, and they walk the earth, and gods make ponds of people. And this has obviously religions and prophecies. Yeah, I think the first time I read this book, at least, I like I didn't think that any of the gods. I just assumed that none of the gods were real. I guess maybe part of it is that like you have these like different religions and different people believe different things. So it just made me think like, well, if they're all like, like they don't really agree, like everyone thinks, believes in different things. So maybe just none of it is real. Um, Cause like, how could they all be true? But then I think like reading further into the series, I'm not so sure anymore. Cause like everyone does seem to believe that gods or a God does like even a commune acknowledges some sort of, existence of a god maybe not as like a person but at least some entity or concept 
Um, but I, I'm very confused about the religion in these books. I, I haven't really figured it out yet. Um, I'll be very uh, open about that. Yeah, very complex. Yeah, maybe. Hopefully it'll make more sense later. Things can appear complex until they're illuminated and then... Yeah, it's, not, it's very, it's really very mysterious. Anything. And then, I mean, you have the God and then the gods and then you have the no God. And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dead God, the hundred gods. Inris the genus, the philosopher, says that there's just no gods. Yeah. yeah, then you have one prophet, you have the latter prophet, then you have Fane, the other prophet. And like one of them says the other's completely false and, and got the religion wrong. And But there was a dream, a weird prophecy. Prophecies seem strange in a soulless, godless universe, kind of. Yeah, but we don't know if it's true, so... It's true. Also, I think in the prophecy, like the moment Komomis dies, like the light twinkles out. There's like a bright light from the sun that like flashes and the light, it all goes dark. That's in Akamian's last dream of that, since they're getting more intense. He sees that. Might just be a something that Sarsalus, it was, a, no, not Sarsalus, what's his name? The thousand-year-old mandate schoolman. Oh, Siswatha. Siswatha. Maybe Siswatha sees it since his best friend died just right then. He sees the light blink out, but that also means that, like, the no-god had just, like, taken over all light from the outside, as they call it, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is, because I still don't know what that is. <laughs> um, I, the whole con, like, yeah, I, the, the whole concept of the outside is not really, it's not very clear to me. Um, I think in Nayor he refers to that in in one of these chapters when he talks about like what the Skilvendi, Skilvendi believed, and he says something like, "There is like a world outside of this world, and that's kind of the opposite." of the world that the that the Skilvendi and the, the other people inhibit and like that when there is a when there's a day it's it's night in our world and you can sort of see the light shining through the stars into our world it's it's very uh I don't really know what to think of that I think I remember that part when he's like talking about the stars that he sees and what they are but I can't remember exactly what he says either he does believe in a dead god, though, and they were on the side of the no god in the first apocalypse, apparently. So, I kind of took it as the like as far as the gods go. I kind of feel like the gods are on on vacation somewhere. <laughs> they're not present, or they've kind of left left this world to you know people to their own devices and kind of just letting things happen. So, yeah, and all gods. In books, there's like levels of control, right? Like how much, if the god can like have divine intervention in people or what kind of powers they get to have. 
So if they're real in this, who knows what kind of powers they get to have. Yeah, in there is... like Malazan, they have lots of strange powers. Gods are crazy in Malazan, for sure. Yeah. And, and prevalent. Definitely more prevalent in this book. Um, but, I mean, there is one scene in one of the early chapters with Enra when he's... Uh, he's he's at a, he's in a temple and he he's praying to uh, one of the goddesses, like he he prays for a sign from her, and then the next thing that happens is the consul shows up with the the Cicelis and the Synthes, and it kind of made me wonder if there is any connection, um, but I don't know. Also, you got to remember where. Near found Kellis, like just how much coincidence is possible? It's debatable. Yeah. Even, Very cryptic. Even to me, it's really debatable. But like, maybe on your fourth read through, you know. It's true. Might, I think I would need might. to do it like faster without so many years in between. Once the years go in between, it becomes like almost the same experience. I just have more life to reflect on all the stuff I read, so it just takes me longer to read it, maybe. <laughs> As a kid, I could only go so deep when this book tries to go really deep. But as I grow up and have lots of good experiences and bad experiences, I can go deeper. People talk about this book being like really dense and other fantasy books being really dense. But I think that this book is another direction from just dense. It's like it's 4D. If dense is just 3D, then this is like 4D. It's dense and deep or something. I've read other books that people consider dense and they didn't have like as much intertwined story or so much times of self-reflection that caused me to self-reflect myself. Yeah, I mean, I, d I do agree, but I also think that you can read this book superficially and still enjoy it for the good story that it is. And like the great characters that it has, um, like there's always more to dig into. But even on the surface, there's still a lot to enjoy. I would yeah. say. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and that that's definitely true. The story itself is one of the craziest stories I ever read. Even just the first time. You're gonna get there soon, Katarina. To where? <laughs> what? People say this is like the most grim dark series ever, and at points it's hard to see where, but at points you definitely see where. Yeah, I, adm I admit I've been making, I've been making very slow progress. Um, it turns out it's it's pretty hard to read two Baker books at the same time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I will get there eventually um oh but let's see 
Uh, maybe we can just quickly go back to Asmanet because it was still yeah. like the, the very ending of her um, her section um, that I think really talked through. So we, uh, I think we, I think we sort of left her where she's 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 um, observing the camp from like a hiding place. Uh, the, the camp where like Proyas and uh, Zainimus are, are, are sitting and sort of celebrating the, the fact that the, the Holy War is going to march finally. And I don't know, she has this like moment where she's thinking like that she could never really, even if Akamin was there, she could never probably like find the courage to, 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 go, to, to go out and walk up to him because like how could she like a prostitute join or sit next to the great men like Proyas or or uh I don't know Confess or who are like Nayor, like all these like people who are so important. Like how could she ever compare to them like how would they ever why why would they ever want to keep her as company? Um and I mean she makes a lot of strange decisions in this book, but it also like I think at the end of the day she is very relatable in that like she is someone who's like she doesn't have much and she kind of comes from nothing and she has very low esteem because of that and because of the fact like she is a woman in the world that does not think much of her. Um, so I really I, I really like that moment. And then she's I think she falls asleep and then Sir Celis wakes her up and he like at first it seems he's going to want to take her back to his encampment but then like for some reason he des he decides to to just let her go um which i also don't quite understand that decision um but she has like she has this sort of like a breakdown where she's after she oh no no she, she then she's she's she she stays there and she's waiting for a kamian and then a kamian shows up but he doesn't see her because she's so he's so like freaked out by the fact he just he just saw a consult spy and like and she doesn't get that he's freaking out so she just thinks that he uh, he's ignoring her deliberately and um, and doesn't want to have anything to do with her. And she has this like a like a small breakdown where she's like everything, all these like scenarios that which she was building up in her head and how she was imagining like their reunification, like how how sweet and how amazing it would be. It's just completely. Um, completely falls apart uh, but then she like she has this breakdown and she picks herself up and she gives herself this like pep talk and i really love the um the quote um what she thinks about like she what she uh she, the memory she has or like something that uh, like one of the older prostitutes told her told her um about like why it's better to be a prostitute in this world than to be and uh, just another like wife or, or concubine and um she says uh that's why we're more more than concubines more than priestesses more than wives more even than some queens we may be oppressed but remember always remember sweet girl we're never owned we spit their seed back at them we never never bear its weight and i, I love that section and i love that that's how she like exits the book um, that she sort of, even all, despite all the, like terrible things that happened to her, like the fact, um, like Kami and abandoning her, and then the architect sort of, like, 
assaulting her essentially and, and her getting stoned and then having this weird relationship with Cicelis. Like at the end, she's like, no, like I, I'm, I'm free. I'm my own woman and uh, I can take care of myself even though like my life is hard. I, I really love that. I, I really love that, that that's how she uh, ends, ends in this book. Yeah, her belief that she is more is pretty powerful. It's like when she is taking in all the guys, she's like trying to vicariously live through them and like find out the politics and trying to like understand the outside world because she took that little philosophy into like her whole life sort of. Her belief that she is more is like a big part of Essence like entire character i think she forgets it because of her position but then she believes it and other people around her like even kind of believe it like i said like the architect or whatever tells sarsalus to let her live because she's like keeping secrets from him so she's like a deeper than people anticipate yeah, I mean, I love that she has this, like, back and forth where she'll think of herself as someone important, someone competent, someone who can play a role in the grand scheme of things. But then she has also these other moments where she uh, um, she, she thinks to herself that she's uh, she's nothing. She doesn't mean anything to anyone. You know what? Like, she, she, she's just completely insignificant. Um and I mean that like it, it's it's it feels very real like I think for a person to uh, like feel confident in one moment and then just com have like completely lose your your sense of self worth in in in, in another instant. Yeah, there's She's a lot of good. like positive and negative personality traits that are on display in these characters. And we you know, you read about it for a lot of books and their personalities and problems and good qualities and bad qualities will all be tried and changed or hardened. Because that's why fantasy books are so good. When they're long series, we get to see so much change. And where our Scott Baker goes so deep into all the character psyches, we get to share their struggles without having to live it. If that makes sense. <laughs> I like yeah, to try yeah. to learn from other people's experience without having to go into the mud myself. And this book helps me go into a lot of muddy thoughts. I certainly would not want to go through uh, most of the things that the people in this book go through. Um, or even meet most of these. Like, I mean, as I said, I love Neor. He's a wonderful character, but I would never, ever want to meet him in real life. Like, if, if I saw him, like, a mile away, I'd, I'd run away. He's... <laughs> when it's Kellis that you should probably run the furthest away from true yeah very true. true yeah it's very true 
Oh, good first, uh, good first start uh, for the first book. Uh, when the the first time I read it, I had a, a totally different, totally different view on it. I think the second time is, I missed a lot. I think the first time, so it's been great to talk to you both about it. Like, like Katarina was saying, you read it the first time and you got a story, but then the second time you just get a more layered story. And it can be enjoyed as just this, this one layered story. Mm -hmm. The people in it do stuff and you get to know them and they do cool stuff. But all the stuff in the background can kind of remain obscure. Maybe even at the end of all of it, it remains semi-obscure. That's what gives all of us Baker fans so much to talk about still. If everything's all nice and tidy and tied up, then there's a lot less to speculate on. And for a fan base, I think speculation is a, is a good thing, kind of. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, yeah, it leads to good conversations and theories and kind of gets your brain working when you're not reading the book. Time to reflect on it. Yeah, and I think there are definitely uh, there are there are definitely things that you know, uh, like the way you read them will depend on like your own experiences or your own worldviews. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think this series can definitely encourage a lot of discussions. I think we proved that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, well, uh... do. You... Do you want to make some uh, predictions about what's going to happen in the next next book, Steve? I think the Holy War is going to fail. That's my prediction. Define fail. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, uh, yeah. It's good. Uh, I think... Um, I think everything's... All the plans that are being made and all the different uh, maneuvering that's happening and politicking, I think all of it's going to be for nothing. Hmm. That it's all going to fall apart. I'm trying to keep my poker face, but I feel like I'm failing. <laughs> That's my prediction. I'm, yeah. I'm debating the validity, validity of your words. This, this book isn't all black and white, so it's yeah. hard to say like if something definitely is or isn't anything. Until yeah, I think... it gets confirmed. It's it's true. I mean, there are different parties that want different things from the Holy War. So failure of the Holy War might mean different things to different people who are involved. I would almost certainly say that the Holy War has to succeed for someone. Um, like some, well, someone there has to be winners and losers from everything. Like every war causes some winners and losers, even if the clearness of them aren't for certain yet well let me put it this way i think Kellis was going to be surprised i think it's not going to work out the way he planned he thinks it will or he wants it to but i think he'll be i don't want to say put in his place or um i think it he'll he will fail in some way I'm not saying anything <laughs> that's my prediction um excited for you to get to the second book there's a lot of action in it. A lot of fun stuff that happens in book two. It's most people's favorite, for sure. Like, 
probably 80% of people like BookTube more than the rest. Yeah, well, book, book, Darkness is still my favorite, but we'll see. We'll see if it changes uh, on the reread of uh, Warrior Prophet. Awesome. We'll find out next week. We'll start to find out anyway. Yep. Um, so. Yep. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say if, uh, since we talked about the skin spies and how that maybe there could be more than Cercellas and Scaos, I was, I was uh, wondering if uh, you might uh, want to make a non educated guess. <laughs> or oh, do, you, I mean, do you even think if there's anyone else who's uh, uh, a skin spy? I don't know. I, I didn't really thought about it until this discussion, to be honest. I, I didn't really put too much thought into that one. That's fine. I mean, yeah. just keep keep an eye out. I'm guessing there'll be more than um, more than um, uh, more than you would first think there would be. I guess you could say There's a lot of them. I'm maybe not saying anything. Yeah, maybe even characters that we've been following are skin spies. Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. This book is crazy. Yeah. Maybe we've been looking through the eyes of a skin spy and just didn't know it. Hmm. That's a thing. We got to look through Sarsalus's eyes once, and it was like a pretty non human foreign place. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Yeah. That is true. That was Just pretty like, uh pretty jarring. In Sarsalus's eyes and Kellis's eyes, they both seem inhuman. Which is weird. Kellis has evolved from humans, but just two thousand years removed in some directions. That's why I can find it believable that he could catch an arrow out of the air or he could hold a person over a precipice with his one arm, even though he's just as big as him. Because 2,000 years of mutating humans for just intellect and superiority could make some pretty strange things, I think. Yeah. I mean, it does make more sense with that knowledge. Um, though I don't think that's necessarily knowledge you possess, or I don't think that's entirely clear, even after you finish the first book. Um, so I did find it a bit, I don't know, irritating when I first read it. But in retrospect, yes, it's it's justifiable. And in it's kind of cool, so... In the first book, it talks about how they only care about intellect and how... They're kind of just specifically bred for intellect and dominating what comes before whatever that is. They, they consider like the absolute to be what they strive for, which is just the beginning of where things come from, wherever that is. They, if they can get that deep, then they can precede all things. And then Kellis kind of started to go pretty deep when he was in that trance. Like, that was his first time, I think, understanding it. 
at 11 years old, and then he had another 20-something years since then to hone whatever that is. Well, his father, like, learned it all and then left, and now he's had 30 years and, like, playing around with little baby humans. Yeah, I, I guess when I first read the book, and, like, yeah, as you say, they, they do mention that the Dunyane breed for, uh, for intellect and for, for skill, I, I guess I just didn't think it, 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 they would take it to that extreme. Um, but I guess the the joke wasn't me. <laughs> You're still yet to see the extremes. Though I think mm -hmm. you know when you will. There's people in the books you're reading that are going to dis discover some extremes soon. It's going to be good. You got to get back there. Or we got to get through all these books so you can we can all be on that part. <laughs> Whatever we decide to do, I guess. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Definitely. So I know, uh, thanks again for, uh, Katerina, thanks for staying up late with us. I know it's, it's late for you, so. No worries, so. I mean, for, uh, what what wouldn't I sacrifice to, to, to have an opportunity to talk about this book, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the pleasure is mine. Okay. Awesome. Daniel, it's always great to, to chat with you. Yep, you guys too. It's, it's been really fun to have people to talk about this first book with. Do people who have like... only read the first book and people who have only read the first series in a little more, so we have a good mixture. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. So when you, when you hear me talk about the book or the series, do you feel like Kellis because you know so much? I definitely understand the condition ground baker has laid out more than you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, judging by this first book, it really doesn't even seem like that epic of fantasy. It's just, it seems like a retelling of the Crusades with the fantastical element. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would take even just the retelling, but uh, yeah, it does get more magical more epic as as you go on you like hear brief descriptions of the epicness like when i kept, like i said Akamian was like thinking about how he was in that same town thousand years ago and just all of the changes that history has made but you don't you get all these characters and just their simple little holy war not the no god mog or any of, of the stuff that hiking Kilmomus had a, what's his name, Kilmomus? The 1,000-year-old king? Yeah, I think, Kilm I think he's Kilmomus. Yeah. The one that be. Seswatha watched die? He was fighting against Mogfaro, the whirlwind, against the shrink, against the no-god that's like... I don't know if the no gods real gods probably realish, or it's all just made up. There is no first apocalypse, or Seswatha lied. <laughs> I, I I won't get into any further speculation. 
Yeah, it is. It's human nature to lie a little bit, right? That's why all these characters in this are kind of unreliable narrators. They only have their one viewpoint of the world. So it skews them into thinking that the Sichuan did things or that it's this person's fault or that person's fault when they just don't see the whole picture. Find out. You're telling me. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so Katarina, if people want to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, if you want to talk to me, I think the page to inform would be the best place to find me, especially to talk about these books. But I'm also on Instagram at uh, the errand. And Daniel, where's the best place to find you? Either the page chewing forum or just like comments in these videos. I'd assume I'll see eventually, hopefully. <laughs> so you could just comment there. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks to both of you. I'm looking forward to uh, to next week. Start book two. Yep. Thanks see you next me. week. Okay. Thanks, everybody.